the wrath of God. This is a hard message for me to preach. It's hard for you to hear. But what you have to understand is that this is our God. This is how he has revealed himself. And therefore, it's crucial for us to know and to understand. And, I can add, to praise him for. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today we continue Tom's series in Romans 1, titled, God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. Romans 1 is one of the clearest passages in Scripture that describes how God views the sinfulness of mankind. It is crucial to understand that God does not grade on a curve. Every sin that has ever been committed, no matter if it's great or small, has been seen by God and has personally offended Him. But for us as Christians, we have found forgiveness in Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, died on the cross in our place, and rose from the grave three days later. Friend, are you relying on a grade curve when it comes to right standing before God? Have you repented and believed in Jesus Christ to be saved from all your sins? Well, let's join Tom Pennington as he opens God's Word right now here on The Word Unleashed. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to continue our journey through this magnificent letter of the Apostle Paul. We are coming up on... The, the last part of Romans chapter 1, it's been a great journey already. There is so much, so much here packed tightly in this amazing letter of the Apostle Paul. Oscar Wilde was an Irish writer of the 19th century. In his own time, he won the highest awards in literature, but his life was a tragedy of the true, in the truest sense of that expression. He was completely lost in the pursuit of his sin. Here's how Wilde himself described his life in his book, De Profundis. Listen to what he writes. The gods had given me almost everything, but I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in search for new sensation. What the paradox was to me in the sphere of thought, perversity became to me in the sphere of passion. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber, one has someday to cry aloud from the housetop. I ceased to be lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul and did not know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me, and I ended in horrible disgrace. Wilde wrote those words while he was in prison for his sins and crimes in a moment of clarity when he realized what the sin he had pursued had done to him. And tragically, as soon as he left prison, he returned to the very same sins because he was truly, as he describes it, 
dominated by sin. He was in slavery to sin. Or in the words of the text that we come to in Romans 1, God gave him over to his sin. Now, in Romans chapter 1, we've noted that Paul, after some introductory comments, introduces the theme of this letter in verses 16 and 17. It is the gospel of God. Having introduced that theme, Paul sets out in the first three chapters of this letter to prove the universal guilt of all mankind, and therefore man's universal need of the gospel. Now his first indictment comes in chapter 1, and it's against all unbelieving pagans. Three times in this section in chapter 1, he refers to those who are engaged in the sin of idolatry. Notice verse 23. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then in verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge the true God any longer. So understand then, this section in chapter 1 indicts all of those who have rejected and refused to worship the true God of the Bible, regardless of what their stated religion might be. It doesn't matter whether they are thoroughly steeped in some form of idolatry or whether they are thoroughly materialistic and secular, or even atheistic. All men who have not worshipped the true God of the Bible, who don't claim to worship the true God of the Bible, are indicted in this passage. In fact, it's even an indictment of those who are in the Christian cults, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, because they don't worship in reality the God of the Bible as they claim, They instead worship gods of their own making. So there is a a huge number of mankind included in this indictment in chapter 1. Paul says of all unbelieving pagans that, notice verse 21, they knew God. They know about the true God from the revelation he has made of himself in creation. But, verse 21 goes on to say, they refused in spite of that knowledge, to glorify him, but turn instead to idolatry. That raises the question, why do people turn from the true God to idolatry? And that's a complex question and a complex answer. There are a variety of reasons. We could could talk about human pride. All false religion appeals to human pride because it allows us to contribute to our acceptance with God. We could talk about the reality of the love of sin. False religion allows us to continue in sin to some extent. It excuses certain sins and even encourages and promotes others. But there is another component I haven't mentioned yet, and I just need to mention, and that is, in addition to humanity's own choice to lead the true God, there is the working of Satan himself, who, according to 2 Corinthians 4, blinds the minds of those who believe not. And one way he does that is with false religion. So it is a It is a complex of factors that are involved in turning from the true God to idolatry. Notice that because of this paganism, because of this refusal to acknowledge the true God, verse 18 says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. 
Now, I've noted to you the, the section we're studying breaks down really in dealing with that wrath. First of all, Paul answers the question of why in verses 18 to 23, and then the question of how in verses 24 to 32. So, just to remind you of the flow of this passage, we noted, first of all, why is God's wrath revealed against unbelieving pagans? The answer comes in verses 18 to 23. It is because of his willful rebellion against God's law. Verse 18 says, he is ungodly and unrighteous. And secondly, his willful ignorance of God's person. God has revealed himself in creation. Man denies that reality and refuses to honor the true God that has revealed himself in this way. So for those two reasons, God's wrath is revealed. Now today we begin the next paragraph, and the paragraph that we come to answers the question of how. How is God's wrath being revealed against ungodly pagans? Let's read the paragraph together that answers this question of how. It begins in verse 24 and runs down through the end of the chapter. You follow along as I read. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That paragraph provides us with such amazing insight into the world in which we live. It answers the question of how is God's wrath being revealed today against paganism? Now, the structure of this paragraph is fairly easy to follow. Three times in these verses, Paul says, God gave them over. In other words, Paul identifies three specific ways, which really is one way, that God's wrath is being revealed against the unbelieving pagan. First of all, in verses 24 to 25, God's wrath is being revealed by giving him over to sexual impurity. In verses 26 and 27, God's wrath is being revealed by giving him over to degrading passions. And in verses 28 to 32, God's wrath is being revealed by giving him over to a depraved mind. A depraved mind, by the way, is defined here not simply as someone who sins, 
but someone who approves of sin, who says sin is not evil, it's good. Now, before we wade into the text itself, I want to lay a foundation for us today by making sure that we understand the large theological issue that stands at the heart of this passage. And that issue, of course, is the wrath of God. Now, let me just admit to you that as a preacher and teacher, there are things I love to teach to you. I have to be honest with you, this would not be one of them. This is a hard message for me to preach. It's hard for you to hear. But what you have to understand is that this is our God. This is how he has revealed himself. And therefore, it's crucial for us to know and to understand. And, I can add, to praise him for So really, the the statement that falls over this entire chapter, the second half of the chapter, comes in verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And beginning in verse 24, Paul tells us how. Now, before we look at how specifically, I want to back up today, and I want to make sure we understand in the large sense what is God's wrath. What are we talking about? So let me break it down for you several ways. First of all, I want to review with you what I touched on, the primary causes of God's wrath. The primary causes of God's wrath. What makes God to be angry? What provokes his wrath? Well, in Romans chapters 1 and 2, Paul teaches us that there are three responses from us that excite God's anger, that provoke his wrath. Three responses. Number one, refusing to properly honor his person. Verse 18 says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And the reason, verse 21, is that although they knew God, what God had revealed about himself in creation, they refused to honor him as God or give thanks. God, the creator, ought to be adored and worshipped and served by every creature who has been made by him and who depends on him for life. It is the ultimate affront to God to know about him, to enjoy his benefits, and to refuse to honor his person. He takes that very personally. It rightly angers him. Secondly, another response that makes God angry is disobeying his will and commands and encouraging others to do so. Notice verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That's our response specifically to God and unrighteousness. That's our response to others in large part. And so this is our refusal to obey God's law. But not only verse 32, do we refuse to obey and practice sins, but we give approval. We encourage others to practice them. And this makes God angry. Thirdly, it makes God angry when we despise his love in the gospel. Despising his love in the gospel. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're you're refusing, he's talking to unbelievers here, you refuse to respond to the truth of the gospel, you are storing up wrath for yourself 
in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There are a number of other texts we could go to where it's clear that God has extended this amazing offer of reconciliation with himself. He has made the gospel known around the world. And when people hear the gospel, they know the gospel, and they keep refusing to respond to the gospel, it angers God because it is the ultimate affront to his graciousness. So those are the primary causes of God's wrath. Secondly, I want you to note the the dangers to avoid. As we continue to try to understand God's wrath, there are two dangers to avoid when we talk about God's wrath. The first is thinking that God's wrath is impersonal. Liberals don't like the idea of God's wrath, and so they just sort of avoid the topic. And when they deal with it, they'll say something like this. Well, it's not that God is doing anything or responding in any way. It's just sort of this impersonal system of cause and effect. That's what wrath is. Understand, folks, as you will see unfolded, God's wrath is not an impersonal process of cause and effect built into his moral universe. Instead, Scripture portrays it as a very personal response of God to evil. If you want to see that, just at some point read the second half of Isaiah 30. It unfolds that very personal nature. The other danger, though, to be avoided when we think about his wrath is thinking that his wrath is capricious. That is, that it's, it's that out-of-control response that characterizes human anger. This is what we tend to think of when we hear wrath, God's wrath. We almost picture him responding like that out-of-control person that we know. That's not God. You see, Scripture is clear that God is not driven by human passions and emotions in the same way we are. Now, why is that? Well, think about it for a moment. Our emotions are responses. They are reactions to either our own thoughts or to the words and actions of others or to our circumstances. Something happens, we think something, someone says something, someone does something, we're in a certain circumstance, and we react, we respond with an emotion. But God never reacts in that way to anything. Why not? Because he knows what's going to happen. And he doesn't just know what's going to happen, he has planned what's going to happen. Nothing takes him by surprise. However, listen carefully, in spite of those potential dangers I've just listed for you, when the writers of Scripture, of course ultimately the Holy Spirit, want to explain God's disposition towards something, they still use the language of human emotion. Theologians call it anthropopathy. Anthropopathy. It's the attributing of human emotions to God in order to help us understand something that's true about him. It's not that God experiences that emotion in the same way we do, and certainly not in a sinful way ever, but using the language of human emotion is the best way to explain God's response to something. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul borrows from the language of human emotion to explain God's response to man's sin. God's response to man's sinful rebellion against his general revelation in creation. And he describes that response as God's wrath or his anger. Now, that brings us to the all-important issue of a definition. A definition. In the New Testament, there are two primary Greek words for anger. The first word is thumos. 
Thumos. This word comes from a Greek word that means to burn. It describes a rage or an outburst of anger, an emotional explosion, an eruption. The second Greek word for anger is orge. Orge is the word Paul uses in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. This word does not refer to this sort of intemperate explosion, an outburst of anger. This word describes a settled hostility, a slow burn, a steady festering of displeasure. The best Greek lexicon defines orge in two ways, as a state of strong displeasure with the focus on the emotional aspect, the way we would use the word anger, and also as strong indignation directed at wrongdoing with the focus on retribution, or the way we would typically use the word wrath. So God experiences both of those. The best way to explain God's response to human sin is the emotional response of anger, the displeasure that comes with anger, and the retribution, the need to deal with it. The lexicon goes on to say, orge is the divine reaction toward evil. It is thought of not so much as an emotion as the outcome of an indignant frame of mind, a legitimate feeling on the part of the judge. W.C. Robinson in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology defines wrath as the settled opposition of God's holiness to evil. Because God is so perfectly holy, he has to respond this way to evil. Several months ago when we began this part of Romans 1, I gave you what I think is the best definition of wrath. It comes from Alan Cairns' Dictionary of Theological Terms. Let me remind you of it. Cairns writes this. This is wrath in reference to God. The settled opposition of God's nature against evil, his holy displeasure against sinners, and the punishment he justly meets out to them on account of their sins. Now, did you notice that definition, and it's an excellent definition, includes three components. I want to break down and examine each of those three elements of God's wrath so you understand what we're talking about. First of all, God is always firmly opposed to evil in all of its kinds and in all degrees. God is just by his nature in opposition to all kinds, every kind of evil, and evil at whatever degree of evil we may think it is. There are a number of texts we could go to. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The Greek is very strong with a double negative. There is simply not any darkness in God. There's no way he can approve in any way of evil. Habakkuk puts it exactly that way. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, Habakkuk writes of God, Your eyes, God, are too pure to approve of evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Now, let's admit that we tend to get this confused when it comes to God. Because this isn't how we are. Let me give an illustration from everyday life. We all have to make difficult entertainment choices about what TV programs, what movies we're going to watch. And I hope you make wise 
informed decisions based on what would please God. But if you watch any entertainment whatsoever, in any form, then you have to make a decision about what you will allow and won't allow. And we have this sort of sliding scale. We say to ourselves, okay, if, if it has this and this, okay, I don't like that, I'll hold my nose, I'll, I'll plug my ears or whatever, but I'm going to watch it. On the other hand, if it crosses over that line and it's this, then I'm, I'm just not going to watch it. I'm not going to see it. I'm not going to hear it. We have to make those kind of decisions. The problem is, if we're not careful, that can lull us into a sort of sliding scale of evil in which we can actually be tempted to laugh at things and enjoy things that are actually evil, even though they're a little evil. That's not how God is. It's crucial that you understand that God has no sliding scale. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 13 of his series, God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. Tom will conclude the series with part 14 next time, and we hope you'll join us then. In his new book, A Biblical Case for Cessationism, Tom Pennington carefully considers seven primary arguments for the cessation of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. As a seasoned pastor and faithful expositor, Tom will help you consider what Scripture teaches about an issue that affects every aspect of the Christian experience, from your view of Scripture and philosophy of church ministry to your daily walk as a disciple of Christ and your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Purchase your copy of A Biblical Case for Cessationism today at thewordunleashed.org. That's the word unleashed.org. Remember to connect with us on social at the word unleashed. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Mm-hmm.